Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Patrick Dunleavy about his new book, The Fertile Soil of Jihad, Terrorism's Prison Connection. Hi, Patrick. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. That's right. Thank you very much. Uh, well, let's dive straight in and we'll um, start off with a bit of background about yourself and how you came to write this particular book. Well, um, I had worked in the... Uh, New York State criminal justice system for about 26 years. The uh, last four years of my career were spent in uh, criminal intelligence um, at the end of uh, after the 9-11 crisis in uh, New York. Uh, I became part of a consortium of uh, intelligence agencies that were looking into terrorist threats within the United States, trying to follow up on old leads and everything like that. And one of the things that uh, we followed up on was a lead that stated that it was an inmate in the uh, U.S. prison system who was uh, actively recruiting uh, individuals in the prison system uh, to a uh, jihad. Right. Okay. Um, so you were actually a full-time public official, basically, at the time while all this was going on. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so uh, you're new to writing books, is is that right? Or? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an interesting uh, story in, in this. Um, when my wife uh, first met me many, many years ago, um, about 38 to be precise, uh, she was told that I was an aspiring writer. And at the time, I actually was going to college, and, and I had thoughts of, of being a writer. But uh, we got married and, and had children, and, and life took a different course, and I wound up going into uh, government service. And about six months, a year before I retired, I had a colleague that I worked with who uh, suggested that I write a book uh, regarding my career. Uh, I had worked as an undercover uh, doing uh, contract murder cases and public corruption cases, and I thought that maybe I would get back into trying to write about some of the colorful cases I uh, I did. So I eventually um, 
went to a uh, writing up a proposal on some of the things that I worked on, and uh, and that's how I began to start to write. Originally, I was going to write about those cases when I thought that uh, the, the subject of terrorism, uh, particularly, was much more important uh, to what was going on, not only in the United States but but in the world. And that's how I started to focus my attention more on some of the latter things that I had worked on in intelligence. And yeah. subsequently, it took a long time, but my wife finally got a book out of the deal. <laughs> well, you've written a very, very good book. I'll, I'll say that. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Um, it. It flows so well. It really is a good read, I have to say. Because a lot of the books I read for this, these podcasts it can be very academic. So they're in that academic structure of you know introduction, background, methodology, analysis. Whereas this is just a pleasure to read. It, it just flows as a as a yarn, as the English would call it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And and, and one of my goals in writing the style that I did, or, or one of my goals was to actually try to tell the, the general public at large, particularly. Um, People in the general public get so confused and so inundated with terminology, particularly when it comes to intelligence, counterterrorism. I wanted to write something that the average person could read through, not get bogged down in um, in a lot of uh, detail. Although there is a lot of detail in the book, I wanted it to move in in, a, in an understandable way for someone who was not. Uh, familiar with the colloquialism of of the terminology that we use in in counterterrorism. Yeah. So thanks, I appreciate that compliment. Let's start talking about then the actual characters involved here. There's one main character who's there for the whole story, a particular guy who comes from uh, Palestine. Abdel Zabin, yeah. 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 So what's his background and how does he come into the story? Well, Abdel um, was actually born in a refugee camp in Jordan. Um, and then his family were Palestinian originally from Ramallah and sometime in the seventies, they moved back to Ramallah. And as he was growing up on the West bank, he became involved in the Intifada in the late eighties in, uh, in Israel. And then I think it was in 1990, early of 1990, he attempted to enter the United States on a Ford student visa, was caught uh, at JFK Airport. They immediately saw the forged uh, student visa, put him in a holding uh, facility, and sent him back to um, the Middle East. Within three months later, he was back in the United States, and this time he got in. Yeah. Um, this all the stuff that I'm telling you was not really realized until this is again 1990. This was not really realized until we went back forensically and looked at him after his name had been given, and we began to look at where he grew up. Like I said, born in Jordan. Settled, resettled with his family in Ramallah, came to the United States, first time failed, second time in. When he came to the United States, he settled in Coney Island, Brooklyn, uh, was his first address he got. Uh, information that we had from confidential sources and also from uh, other uh, intelligence sources showed that he had moved somewhat about the United States. 
Uh, we believe that at some point he was in the Texas area um, in a, a small town called Mesquite, Texas. Uh, we also know that uh, he moved in different sections of New York City from the period of 1990 till 1993. And then in January of 1993, uh, he was arrested for a series of kidnappings and robberies in uh, Midtown Manhattan. Um, that was January 26, 1993, when he first got arrested. 30 days later, February 26, 1993, uh, was the first bombing of the World Trade Center where a truckload of explosives was driven into the basement of the uh, World Trade Center and detonated, killing six people and injuring 1,000. At the time that Abdel Zabin was doing these robberies and kidnappings, it was him and another uh, Middle Eastern uh, male who had a van. They would go around Midtown Manhattan. Um, they would look for individuals who were by themselves, preferably male. They would jump out of the van, drag these people into the van, duct tape them, put a gun to their head, take their wallet, and take their ATM card, and then drive around um, getting the money out of the individual's bank account. And at the time when he was arrested, there was a 1993, was, was New York was, was facing a, an epidemic of crime, particularly violent crime, because of the crack epidemic, uh, homicides were up around 2,000 a year. And so this was just seen at the time as just another robbery. It wasn't until later on when we went back and revisited the lead and actually talked, interviewed, re-interviewed some of the victims that they said as they were being robbed in the van, Abdel and his, his co-compadre uh, were talking back and forth, sometimes in English and sometimes in Arabic, And they were overheard saying in English that this is for the cause. That information never came forward in the uh, criminal uh, complaints. And so, as I said, he went to jail January 26th. Everyone looking at him as just another criminal, low-level criminal in a crime-ridden city. Hmm. And uh, 30 days later, the other, the other Arabic individual was never apprehended. Right. Abdel, Abdel never gave him up during the interrogation. During his arrest processing, so yeah, yep. So he was actually appears to be radicalized before he went to prison. Well, again, that that was that was some of the things that we debated back and forth. Again, we were dealing with intelligence. We we're dealing with uh, NYPD intelligence, my agency, uh, different individuals from federal agencies, and saying what was this guy's background? Did he become radicalized? after the arrest. And at first, that was what it was thought, that the fact that he was arrested, and they say there's no atheists in prison, yeah. that he began to return to his roots of Islam. My research, when I was looking back on it, changed my view on that, because I found that when he came over to the United States, he had visited some places where there was some radical Islamic organizations. He went to mosques, where there were radical Islamic preachers. When he first came to the United States, he got a job in Brooklyn working for an individual by the name of Ali Cassette on a store on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. Ali Cassette turned out to also have been from the West Bank, but Ali 
was a little bit older than Abdel, was actually during the generation of Abdullah Azam, who was, uh, again, one of the other leaders in the Middle East um, back during um, a time when, when Abdel Zabin was a kid. Ali Kassed wound up being one of the founders of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Yeah. Who re- yeah, who were responsible for bombings and killings in Israel. When Ali moved to the United States, he became more of a facilitator of finances. He was an individual who was raising money now for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And any Palestinians that came over into the United States, particularly into the New York area, Ali was a person that you could find and make contact with and get some sort of direction. So with that association, I mean, again, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine was not fundamentally Islamic. It was a socialist. Yes. Uh, but there were in my, and from what I know from, from Abdel Zabin's association with them and also Abdel's association in the first intifada with Hamas, it was more that there were already the seeds within him to be radicalized, as well as the things that were said to the victims that this money was for the cause. Yep, yep. Maybe we should talk about how that process of radicalization happens in prison. So what actually happens? So for some people, and there's quite a few characters in your book, who convert when they're in prison as well. So what's a sort of rough outline of the process of a person arriving in prison, their sort of background, they end up looking for that support and then um, being radicalized? Well, that's, that's interesting because uh, the United States uh, FBI as well as the CIA did uh, case study, behavioral studies on what was the actual profile of uh, an individual who would be susceptible to radicalization, and they they did a great behavioral study. We found that Abdel Zabin didn't have to do that. He could look at a guy, see him walk into a cell block, and could tell immediately what that individual's criteria was, whether or not that that individual was his first time in prison, whether he was a loner, whether he felt that he was disenfranchised. Um, All those type of things Abdel could see in an individual, and he, he would... First of all, seek out an individual like that, and then he would begin to talk to him about Islam, his view of Islam. Um, there was a particular kid by the name of Eddie Lemons, one of the guys I write about. Uh, Eddie was um, an African-American male who was grew up in Chicago, and during the 1980s, his parents felt that uh, there was a lot of uh, temptation with drugs and also with gangs in Chicago, and so they had him move to his uncle's in upstate rural area in New York, Fulton, New York. Well, Eddie was only in the town where he lived. Um, I think only seven-tenths of one percent were actually African-American. The overwhelming majority was white. Um, Eddie went to school, but around when he was 16, 17 years old, started to experiment with marijuana he had some learning disabilities, started to do low-level crimes, um, DW, drunk driving while intoxicated, marijuana possession, finally graduated to doing robberies, 
and found himself arrested and in the county jail uh, facing a sentence, I believe, of uh, three to five years or three to seven years. And he had no one in prison. When he went into prison, the, the prison he just happened to wind up in was one where Abdel Zabin was. Um, Abdel Zabin went and started to talk with Eddie, started to bring him in to uh, exploring Islam as a religion, and then began to tutor him on Arabic to actually speak the language. He told him that if you have to study the Quran, you have to study it in its original language. And so he's taught him how to, um, to read and to speak Arabic. He also began to work on the part of the individual. When a person's in, in prison, one of the first things they have is a sense of animosity towards authority. Naturally, because they've been arrested. And so Abdel would work on that animosity, that anger, to funnel it to another target. That the real enemies of this world are the enemies of Islam. And your enemies are my enemies. And so he would give them also a sense of camaraderie. Yeah. In prison by yourself, you, you don't have any group associations. This was his first time in prison, Eddie Lemons. And so Abdel drew him into his community of Muslims. Abdel was the chaplain's clerk in this particular prison. And so Eddie had a sense of belonging. I now belong to a group. I now have a, a higher purpose. I'm looking to serve God. I now have an outlet for my animosity because the real enemies is the infidels. Yeah. And so that's how the process worked. Yeah. You mentioned that um, Abdel Zabin was the clerk for the chaplain. And you've got some fantastic information in the book about how people use their positions to get access to communication so they could communicate with people outside of the prisons. And there's also another section you talk about, we might discuss after we first talk about that, where you um, explain how the visitation process allows people to introduce each other. You just want to talk about that, like, it, let's just stick with that Zabin's role as a clerk. Yeah, just a, just an overall view of, of prison, particularly in New York State and um, many of the other states in the federal prison system. Inmates are not allowed to be idle. They have to be given a job, a function. Uh, we laugh about inmates making license plates or stuff like that. But there really are jobs. If the inmate isn't going to school, there are jobs for them to do. Um Many of the administrative functions of the chaplain's office, and there's chaplains for all the different faiths, are done by inmates. And so an inmate becomes the clerk for a chaplain. Now, when we look back on this, again, we, we should have known because in 1992 we had an inmate um, by the name of El Said Nosser, who was arrested for shooting a... Um, Rabbi Meyer Kahani in New York City, and wound up going to Attica Prison. And one of the first things that El Said Nosser asked for as a job, and, and when you go for a job in this particular prison system that we were looking at, you go and sit before a committee made up of a security person, a program person, and an administrative person, and they're supposed to look at your overall um, needs as well as the needs of the department and see where they can put you. And they allow the inmate to ask for a particular job. El Said Nosser asked if he could be the chaplain's clerk. And he became the clerk for the imam. 
while he was in that office, he was able to have access to know all the other Muslim inmates in the prison. He was to have more freedom of movement out of his cell more than a normal inmate. And he was able to use the phone in the chaplain's office. Now, that happened in 1992. Abdel Zavin came into the system in 1993. And by the time he had moved up into the state system, his job that he asked for was the chaplain's clerk. And so in all the prisons that he went to, Auburn State Prison, Cayuga, Fishkill, every place he landed, he became the chaplain's clerk, which gave him freedom of movement, gave him the names of all the other Muslim inmates in the prison, and gave him access to a phone that had the ability to call beyond the prison wall. Mm. Yep. And was there evidence then that he was using that to network with other people outside the prison? Yes, there was. We actually had uh, had a pretty sophisticated uh, wire intercept uh, um, system where we could actually go back on prison phones 10 or 15 years. We had developed this system back in the early 1990s. So we began, again, with his name and looked back on his phone calls and his phone list to see who he was calling regularly. Then what we did is we went into the administrative phones in the particular prisons that were here, he was in and dumped the phone records for 10 years and found phone numbers being dialed from the chaplain's office all around the world. All around the world. All around the world. Uh, it's amazing. Being an ex-public servant myself, the ability to <laughs> ring outside of your own state was something that was controlled incredibly tightly. The ability to ring overseas was impossible. So I find it amazing that a guy in jail was able to do it on a government phone. Well, the way he was able to do it, and again, it gets to some of the things we talked about, uh, the ingenuity of the, of the criminal. The phone is, again, supposed to be secure so that the only one that can dial outside locally is the chaplain. And the chaplain has a PIN, a personal identification number that he punches in so that he can call locally. Well, what Abdel Zabin and others discovered is that with that PIN number, which the chaplain often, because he was forgetful, left in his notebook or left it on his desk, were able to get that. Then they were able to get phone cards from visitors and cohorts outside of them, and they would get AT&T phone cards, MCI phone cards, so that when they were dialing a local number from the phone, they would just dial an 800 number. They'd get the AT&T trunk line and then dial North Africa, Jordan, Mm. Houston, Texas, all over the United States as well as as over the Middle East. Wow. And we actually had tape conversations and this is where the complicity of, of some of the uh, religious workers came. We actually intercepted phone calls of, of Abdel Zabin talking to individuals over in the Middle East, in Egypt, and also in um, the West Bank. And he told them, call the prison, ask for the chaplain's office, and when the chaplain gets on the phone, tell him you want to speak to me, Abdel Zabin. If I'm not in his office, he will come and get me. He is a good Muslim brother. And we found that that word code terminology, he is a good Muslim brother, whenever Abdel used it, 
meant that it was someone that he had already bent to his will. Right, right. So and it was trustworthy. That's incredible. Well, raising yep. the question of getting the phone cards then brings us on to that other question of communication through visitation rights. How did that operation work? You were actually mentioning how the, the layout was where there were some places prisoners couldn't go, such as to the, the vending machines, but people right. would hang around there, yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the process of visiting and, and reestablishing family ties is part of the, the rehabilitative philosophy of, of some correctional agencies. And so they encourage visiting and they set up strict guidelines and controls so that inmates are not supposed to um, co-visit or cross-visit. If they have a wife or girlfriend or mother or father, brother comes in to visit, they're supposed to sit at that table and talk to them only. There is a common area in the visiting room where there are vending machines because visits can last up to six, seven hours. And so people are allowed to buy beverages and food and they would go over to the vending machines. Well, they worked out a system so that if I wanted to get a message to you, if you were another inmate and I was an inmate, we would just have our visitors go down to the vending machines at the right time. You yep. go down at 10.05. He goes down to 10.06, and then we pass our messages. Right, right. So it, what we were saying before we started the interview was that people who are in jail have an enormous amount of time, and they can use that time to think of all these different ways of playing the system, not just for radicalization, for all sorts of purposes, and that's how the contraband gets in and out as well. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's how we, we drew back on our experience for, of knowing about the uh, uh, there were, were inmates in prison who continued to deal narcotics while they were in prison and smuggling. And so we drew on our experience of knowing how they had breached the system. And this is how it works with a radical inmate, like someone like Abdel Sabin, who, while he had traveled around the world and, and knew various individuals, didn't know how to do time in prison. So when he came into prison, some of the first guys that he associated with were Dominican drug dealers guys who had been arrested for narcotics trafficking who were Dominican. Uh, and he learned from them how the prison system works. And you find that there is a communication system within prison systems. And it doesn't matter whether it's a state system or federal bureau of prisons that has its own system of how to communicate illegal letters, illegal phone calls, getting messages through visitors. I, I liken it to a USB port on a computer. So when a terrorist comes into prison, he really doesn't have to build his own communication network. He simply has to plug in to what's already existing. And prison has a, a, a incredible communication system to get messages to the outside. It's like a USB port for your computer. Yeah. You plug in and, you, and you're good to go. Yeah. Oh, I can remember stories of about a particular prison, old prison in uh, Australia called Grafton Prison, where the toilet system didn't have a water level at the bottom of the cisterns, so it was all open. And the prisoners learnt they could hold conversations all over the prison by sticking their head into the toilet bowl and the voices would travel. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, the ingenuity, it's, in, it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, there, was a, there was a guy uh, who was the head of the uh, Latin Kings, which was a, a notorious violent gang, in New York State Prison, he was able to use that communication system, even put
putting messages in Bibles to order uh, hits on other individuals in the street. He was responsible for six or seven homicides while he was in prison, and those people were outside. He was able to get messages to tell his his uh, followers, find this guy, hit this guy, do this, do that. Yeah, I so, saw yeah. a presentation from a criminologist from the Midwest. He was saying that one of the prisons there, that um, one of the large Mexican gangs found it was safer to run their operation from prison because they weren't Absolutely. subject to random hits. Absolutely. It's, it's called hiding out in prison. Yeah. Uh, we've, had, we've had guys run narcotics trafficking. We've had uh, individuals run prostitution rings in New York City from a prison cell 200 miles away. That's incredible. Yeah, it is. So how did this work then for this uh, radicalization group? Did, were they actually able to influence uh, terrorist activity? Were they, did anything result from their activity? Well, what, what we found is that there w- it was a, a continual winnowing, winnowing out process. They would get an inmate, like Abdel would find an inmate, convert him to Islam. While the individual was in prison, he was going to the, to the prison mosque all the time to see if he was faithful. Now came the time for his parole, his release from prison. And so Abdel or others who were like him would steer him towards particular mosques go to this mosque, and we found that those particular mosques that they were being directed to had a radical ideology there. Once the individual started out there, they would, again, monitor him to see whether or not he truly was faithful. Was he really faithful? Because a lot of guys, they call it prislam. They convert in prison, but when I get out, I go back to doing crime or drugs or everything like that. So they prove him. Is he going to the mosque every, every Friday for Juma services? Now, after some period of time, while he's on parole, being faithful in the mosque, as the time got towards the end of his parole, they would now steer him towards an Islamic school within the United States. We know of one that was steered to uh, an Islamic school in uh, Falls Church, Virginia. We know another one that was uh, steered towards an Islamic school in Gainesville, Florida. Again, this is, this is seeing how far they're going to go with their commitment to Islam, to their, this particular uh, version of Islam. Now, once they had finished their supervised release, they were off parole or supervised release, they were free to travel outside the United States. They had passed two or three tests to see whether or not they would be faithful, and then they would be recommended to go to a madrasa either in Yemen or in Egypt, and from there, they were again tested, and then they were sent. Uh, we had the information on Eddie Lemons that he actually went for underground training while in um, Yemen and uh, also made a visit to Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Right. What happened, again, we were working this as an intelligence case. We had observed individuals preparing and training to become tactical. They had trained overseas. They had been observed on ranges in the United States training. There was some conversation that went back and forth between Abdel Zabin in the prison and this individual overseas talking about a big truck. And that individual overseas was Eddie Lemons. The decision was made, and again, this this was a highly controversial decision. How long do we let this play out? Do we let it play out till the actual bomb in the truck, or do we intercept 
prior to that. And the decision was made to intercept prior to that. So while we knew that one individual who had converted was coming back to the United States fully operational, the decision was made at the Department of Justice to arrest him when he arrived in the airport in Orlando International Airport. Right. It's quite an incredible story. I mean, this is one of the advantages of getting stories. There's a, a guy, Michael Kenny, who's an academic in, uh, I think, in Philadelphia, and he said to me once, forget the stats, tell everyone the story, because the story is where you find out the detail and the process, and uh, oh, I, yeah. it's my preference of the way I do my research, too. Yeah, because, I, I mean, we can sit around and, and, and debate, uh, you know, whether or not, and, and I did, I had to testify before um, Congressional U.S. Congress uh, Homeland Security Committee, and, and some of the debates were, were esoterical. You know, you're talking about, well, what if, could this, that. And I felt it was a whole lot easier to say, hey, you know what, let's just took a, take a look at five, six individuals who we know. You make a decision whether or not they were radicalized. We have taped conversations of the individual talking about blowing up people. We have other uh, following individuals who went to certain places. We, we see a process where an individual moves from being a common criminal to the point where he says, yeah, I'll, I, I would blow myself up for Allah. Yeah. Look at it. And uh, there was another guy by the name of Kevin James in 2005 in uh, New Folsom Prison in California. He was a member of the, of the 76th Street Crips. He was a Crip. He goes into prison, forms his own Islamic organization, Jamaat Islamia, becomes operational, converts LeVar Washington in the prison also. When LeVar gets paroled, he gets two or three more guys. They get the weapons. They're going out doing gas station robberies so that they can get more money to buy more weapons so that they can blow up synagogues and military installations. And this is all being run from a prison cell. So Just look at them and say, hey, you know, you make the decision yourself. I can only tell you what I've listened to, what I've seen, and you can decide whether or not prison is a viable place. Yeah. So just to wrap up then, what, what would be your recommendation to the policy makers about this issue and prison radicalization in prison? Uh, well, the first thing would be to recognize that prison is a microcosm of society. Whatever issues you have in society at large, you will have in prison. If you have literacy problems in society, if you have uh, substance abuse problems, if you have uh, health problems, you're going to have the same problems in prison. Yeah. Subsequently, if you have radicalization in your society at large, you will find it in your prison system. So first you have to recognize that. The second thing you have to do is you have to be innovative in how you approach it to, uh, to de-radicalize or how you approach it to monitor it. As we just talked about, inmates are ingenious. They change constantly. They know how to change. We just talked about some of the communication methods. They're already moving to a second, third generation ability. We have to do that if we're going to combat them. We have to be innovative. We have to be vigilant and never never give up in that sense. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, that's, that's good. my recommendation. Um, again, do not deny that the problem exists and be innovative 
um, in how you approach it. And, and is there a de-radicalization process? Can we recruit from the same soil that the radicalizer is and infiltrate their cells that way? Mm. You know, innovation. Yeah. Are there many people doing work on this issue? Yeah, there is. Yeah, and they're all within yeah. the system. Yeah, after after the uh, after our initial case, which was the first one that was actually looked at, there have been systems in, and um, checkpoints and tripwires that have been set up uh, through the intelligence community, community, community and law enforcement community um, to use methodology to to actually see radicalization taking place place and to neutralize it before it becomes operational. I, I can't really go into those particular methodologies that they use, but um, yeah, there, there is, a, and it's a global effect. Um, we saw an, as an individual in France, Mohamed Murat, young guy who killed six people, three paratroopers, two children and a rabbi. He became, he was an Algerian immigrant, a uh, son of Algerian immigrants in France, Toulouse, France, who didn't become radicalized until after he spent two years in a French prison because of low-level crimes. So we've seen the situation. We saw the situation in London, uh, in the UK prison system. We've seen it in, in, in Europe. I believe it's happening even in, in uh, the Far East and um, prisons there. Yeah, so it's definitely, it's definitely happening in Indonesia and places like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that. yeah. Wherever you have prisons, you'll have you'll have the same issues. Well, look, thank you very much for having this interview today. A pleasure. I, I really, uh, I'm, I'm glad to uh, be able to talk to you on this. Mm-hmm.